Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned in to Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, but our show is not about real estate. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program celebrating New York, our history, our texture, and vibe. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we bring an individual New York neighborhood to life. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? On some shows like tonight, we celebrate an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Prior episodes, you've heard us cover topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or who had some interesting history here. We've looked at the history of women activists and the suffrage movement in the city. We've looked at the history of different immigrant communities. We've looked at the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. We've looked at the history of punk and opera. One of them is going to dovetail that a little bit tonight. Those were separate shows, by the way. We've looked at our public library systems. We've looked at the subway. We've looked at public art. We visited some of our greatest train stations and even some of our bridges. Yes, everyone, New York City has great bridges like everything else. After the broadcast, you can catch our show on podcasts. We're on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Podcast, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and other services. Tonight is a special show with two very special guests. We are going to explore uh, not punk, but the period that came right after that, new music in New York in the 1980s. An exciting period and one which I have to say I have a little personal experience in. Uh, we have two great guests tonight. My first guest is Sean Corcoran. Uh, since 2006, I almost said 19 something, 1980, right? Since 2006, Sean has been the curator of prints and photographs at the Museum of the City of New York. He, pre he previously served as assistant curator of photography at the George Eastman Museum. That's in Rochester, by the way, everyone. Over the years, he has organized a wide range of exhibitions, including City as Canvas, graffiti art from the Martin Wong Collection, sightseeing, photographic excursions and tourism, and the upcoming exhibition, A City Scene, Todd Webb's Postwar New York from 1945 to 1960. Sean has written extensively on photography, including essays for Elliot Erwitt, At Home and Around the World, Alexei Titorenko, The City as a Novel, and The World Atlas of Street Photography, that's published by Thames and Hudson. And I can say since Sean has been back, to, has been to Rediscovering New York in the past, Sean, a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York. You're muted. <laughs> My apologies. Um, there you go. Sorry about that. Thanks for having me. It's it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, my pleasure. It's always wonderful to, to have uh, people from the Museum of the City of New York, and it's great to have you back. Um, Sean, you're not originally from the city, are you? No, I, I grew up uh, in the Finger Lakes area um, uh, and, and lived there a good portion of my life. I went to graduate school at Syracuse, so, but I, I'm a New Yorker, just not a New York City native. Yeah. Well, I have friends who uh, are, are from Buffalo and they're New Yorkers as well. You know, Western New York is as much part of the Empire State as uh, Downstate is. Indeed. Tell us about your professional journey that led you to curating photographs. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I was, um, I, I, was, I was a kid. I was always interested in um, history. And um, as I got older, became interested in art. And photography really, for me, was... Uh, the, a medium which uh, allowed me to kind of uh, explore, uh, you know, uh, a medium where both were possible, where photographs could be historical artifacts, documents, um, and they could also be artful. They, they, you know, every every picture is created by um, someone behind the 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 machine, the instrument, the media. And uh, they are framing it and making decisions which ultimately affect what is there in, in the still image. Hmm. When did you begin working at the George Eastman Museum? And I want to tell our listeners, by the way, I've been to the Eastman Museum. For our listeners who may not know who George Eastman was, he was the founder of Eastman Kodak. And Kodak is uh, an old name and certainly uh, was <laughs> profound as far as what they did to bring the ability uh, of taking photographs and documenting things to the public through through so many of their inventions. 
Um, yeah, I, I worked, I, let's see, I started there, I started working there really right out of graduate school. Um, and, you know, as a, as a kind of, um, you know, curatorial assistant, basically doing a lot of research on projects for other curators. And um, the beauty of that place was they have a nearly encyclopedic collection. So I got to see you know, every style of photography from every different era. Um, and they also have a motion picture um, collection and, and they, they show a repertoire, repertory um, films, you know, every night a different film. So in fact, that experience actually helped me a bit in this exhibition, a, a familiarity with uh, video, uh, video and um, and motion picture, because that became actually a really important component to the show beyond the still photography. Um, you know, we're, this exhibition takes place at the advent of you know um, over the shoulder handheld you know video production and you know a, a, and a DIY kind of do it yourself. Um, um, Kind of ability which really had an impact on the documents that we have today that that are able to show what people like Richard were doing back then and and it provides a, a, an extra layer of, of insight into um, into the time and the way we can experience that time today. I may have committed a faux pas uh, when I read your bio I did not say that a very big focus on our discussion was going to be the new exhibition at the Museum of the City of New York, <laughs> New York New Music, 1980 yeah. to 1986. But before we talk about that, uh, yeah, sure. I want to talk about, uh, I want to ask you what other exhibitions that you've worked on at the museum prior to this one? Um, well, I, one of the, one of the, I guess the more uh, popular shows, uh, and, and again, dealt with still photography and motion picture was uh, an exhibition on the photographs of Stanley Kubrick. Um, you, what, what very few people didn't know was that before Kubrick began his film career, he spent five years as a teenager and in, in, into his early 20s as a, as a staff photographer for Look Magazine, which was, um, you know, a bi-weekly magazine that was kind of like, today we remember Life a bit more maybe, um, but it was kind of a competitor with Life. And, and he really learned how to... Um, see the world and, and capture it in a way that would be very important to his later film work. Uh, so that's one. I did one on talking tangentially to our exhibition. I did an exhibition on um, on graffiti train writing, the train writing era of graffiti uh, from the 70s and 80s, which we have a, a collection of ephemeral material. Um, and then I also did an exhibition on the early years of hip hop uh, as seen through photography uh, in the work of Joe Conzo, Martha Cooper, and Jeanette Beckman, three important documenters of, of that early time. And you also worked on the uh, exhibition called Activist New York, which is uh, we discussed in a prior show, which is available on podcast. Um, that takes us to New York, New Music, 1980 to 1970, 1986, yeah. What was the genesis of the show? How did it come about? And who thought of it? Yeah, yeah, we, we, you know, we always have these brainstorming meetings amongst the cura curatorial departments and everybody knows I'm interested in, in, really interested in music. And we've done a few, as I mentioned, exhibitions. Um, we did a, an exhibition entitled Folk City a few years, in, I think about 2016. So music is a, a subject that we do come back to um, pretty regularly at the museum. And the, somebody brought up that the fact that the 40th anniversary of MTV was coming up this summer. And they said, oh, that's, that's interesting. And I said, well, you know, MTV is, is important, but it's really only a part of a bigger story of what was happening in music in New York at the time. And that really, I think we could really engage the public and, and really bring out some interesting things if we explored the broader musical scene at, at that time. So that that's kind of the genesis is, you know, a brainstorming session where ideas come out and then things get mashed up and expanded and, and refined. In fact, our second guest was nominated for the first ever MTV Music Video Awards, and we'll get to that in the second half. Um, how long did it take to put this show together, Sean? Um, 
Uh, it was for, for, for museum um, kind of museum uh, uh, timelines, it was relatively fast. I think we, from Genesis, it was, um, I think 2019, the fall of 2019. I have, because of COVID time is kind of, <laughs> it doesn't, in the last year or so, I, I, I have a hard time separating years, but it's been about a, a little more than a year and a half with the real core of the work being done in the last nine months to a year, which usually we would we would try to do that work in about two years. Hmm. Aside from the actual content, was there anything that was different about how this show was put together compared to other exhibitions that you worked on at the museum? Sure, yeah, Th this, this exhibition by far had the most, um, um, lenders of any exhibition I've ever worked on, meaning more materials came from different people than, you know, I think we had more than 50 lenders, uh, be they photographers or people like Richard who have uh, ephemera memorabilia from their, their, you know, this particular time period, um, um, video footage, you know, flyers, newspaper articles, you know, you name it, music instruments, um, uh, zoot suits even. Um, so there, there were a lot of moving parts, a lot of different objects, which we kind of had to pull together and then try to figure out how to fit it all together to kind of tell an overarching impressionistic story of the all the great creative music being, being um, being made in the city at that time well the story about how some of the video that's in the show got produced is uh uh really something do you want to talk about how how some of that video got shot and uh how it, it it's recorded today for uh posterity for all of us to be able to see at the museum sure there are, there are several um several people who provided us with really uh, really great footage uh you know and it's every everything from um, you know, students who were going to NYU and borrowing their borrowing the equipment uh, without permission and taking it to shows and filming to uh, and, and then and, returning it in the morning before the sun came up. Exactly, or or maybe they worked at a public access show, um, but you know they managed to borrow the equipment or um, or you know and and really create you know, incredible footage. And, and later on, you know, some of the clubs uh, like Haraz, you know, they actually hired people to work and document the footage. So then they could then record it and feed it to their lounges and, and then maybe use the material again later in, you know, downtimes. And, and so there's, there's a lot of different reasons the footage was made sometimes just, um, you know the 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 chutzpah of of the these young because they were they were you know, young at the time um, creating documenting this stuff and there was also a public you know public access television shows happening in the city at this at the same time and they would have musical guests and you know so for instance you know, that's right the late seventies I think was the start of public access television on cable at least in exactly. Manhattan. Exactly. So there would be public access shows. There would be cable, other cable television shows that were all produced out of New York and were bringing on guests. So we tried to bring in a little bit of all the different ways people might encounter music through motion picture um, at that time as well. And, and then, of course, MTV after 1981, although mm -hmm. MTV didn't air in New York City until about a year later. So um, like eight, end of 82, 83. Well, in some ways, New York isn't on the leading edge of things. <laughs> Sometimes it's taken <laughs> us a little longer uh, to uh, to uh, adopt. So maybe in some senses, we're an early adopter, but not necessarily an innovator. Um, we're going to take a short break and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Sean Parker. And Sean is a curator at the Museum of the City of New York. And we're talking about the present exhibition, his latest New York New Music, 1980 to 1986. We'll be back in a moment. 
You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Did you know that nearly one in five adults in the U.S. battles mental illness? Hi, my name is Albert Dabba. I'm the host of the show Extra Innings. Extra Innings, I discuss the topics of wellness, mental health, and the experience of surviving multiple suicides within my family. Listen live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to Extra Innings for discussions with sports figures, artists, mental health professionals, and many others. That's Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. back this is rediscovering new york and you're tuned into our special episode new music in new york in the 1980s my first guest is sean corcoran sean is the curator at the museum of the city of new york and not so coincidentally uh the exhibition that we're talking about is new york new music 1980 to 1986 sean to us new yorkers uh you know from uh the sound all the way up to all the way up to lake erie um, New York really is the island at the center of the world. Um, there were new music scenes in other cities in the U.S. At, at this time. Was there anything unique about the music scene in New York? Let's say it's different from might have been the scene in San Francisco or Seattle or or other places, even even Athens, Georgia. Well, I would. I mean, for 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 me, having having gone back and and listen to a, a lot of music and tried to look at a lot of the popular press in the city what really impresses me about new york at the time is the the just the the breadth of of music being played here the the the, the many genres that were that were on stage night after night and sometimes on the same stage on the same night or or the night one night to the next, meaning, you know, a place like Mud Club might have the bongos, but then they might also have Ray Barretto the next night. Or, you know, it, it, and that is what's for me uh, so unique about this time period is there was a there was an openness amongst musicians to listen hear other music to absorb other music in some cases to incorporate it into the things that they were doing or collaborate with people working uh in different media in different genres um and that may have been happening in in other cities to be honest with, with you maybe i don't know about them but the extent to which it was happening here it, it just kind of blows blows me away i, I just feel like it it um and and not only was it pervasive but it 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 appeared in recorded form as well you know when you think about okay maybe herbie hancock isn't exactly a new york musician but he brought in 
Grand Grand well Grand Mixer DST. Did he change? I think he goes by DST. He was DST. Now he goes by. <laughs> I, I'm, I, he he used to go by Grand Mixer DST, and who does who really did the first turntablism on a jazz record, and of course that became a huge hit, not just on MTV, but you know, all across the radio waves of the United States. So you had jazz bringing in, um, you know, hip hop turntablism. You had Blondie rapping and, and name checking Fab Five Freddy and Grandmaster Flash. You know, all, all these all these different things. You had the Fort Apache band, uh, uh, um, you know, two brothers, Andy and Jerry Gonzalez, who in the 70s were adamantly exploring latin uh latin you know puerto rican and cuban rhythms and by the 80s ex taking those rhythms and exploring jazz and and melding it with jazz so that is what i think so unique about new york in the 80s is is this kind of exploration across genre mm. What are the kinds of new music could you hear live at clubs that you wouldn't catch before 1980? I say new because we've always had genres like jazz, the blues, and certainly folk music, which could be heard in New York well before 1980, you know, certainly from the 50s and the 60s. Um, and in and, and that sense, too, were there, were there almost um, uh, uh, new, I, you know, this is an overused word, but fusion, I mean, fusion cuisine, fusion this, fusion that. But, but was there a fusion of genres that, that, that end up creating um, music that might not have existed had that collaboration not, not taken well, I, place? I think in the, by the early 80s, hip-hop was really hitting its stride. And, you know, that was, you know, DJs on turntables cutting up existing records and and, MC, and, and MCs, you know, rapping, rapping on top of it. I think that that was... That was birthed in the 70s but really came to fruition in the 1980s and you know a, a lot of the things that we might consider new had their genesis in the 70s An another thing uh, i think is worth mentioning is the is kind of the the effects of no wave and and groups like dna or um you know groups like dna in which it's, there was a real experimentation with sound and uh, tonal sound and um, kind of throwing throwing away the idea of, of certain formalities and just going for blind experimentation. Not really blind because it was informed. Blind's not the right word, but just really trying to experiment. Um, and then and, and in, in another kind of uh, situation, there were avant-garde composers really creating new um, new pieces like people like John Zorn or or even uh, we have in the exhibition uh, Arthur Russell who was a, a classically trained cellist who was making music to dance to he was he was he was making experimental compositional music but then also stepping into the dance world and, and making this uh, almost, I don't, I don't know if mutant disco is quite the right description, but, but really like taking dance music in a very new direction. Mm. So from what you're saying, there definitely was something unique about the vibe in the city's live music scene. I want to talk about the intersection of, um, or the, the crossroads of the vibe in the city and the vibe of the new music scene. Would you say there was something that was new in New York at the time that facilitated this this collaboration and this new music, or was the creation was it the creation of the music that helped to move the vibe of the city, or was it a combination of both? I think they I think they go hand in hand. One doesn't happen without the other. It, you know, to a certain extent, you have the city beginning to rebound of from fiscal crisis, kind of getting its legs back yet still being a pretty gritty place, a place where artists can afford to live, maybe not worry all day about making their rent, um, you know, and, and, and feeling the freedom to say, I'm going to be in a band. And in some cases, you know, not even really knowing how to play them, but 
thing. I'm going to be in a band and we're going to do something. We're going to make art. And, uh, um, and in other cases, like Richard being very well accomplished musicians. Um, and, you know, there, so there was a, there was a feeling, I think in the city that you could be here and, and give, give it a go as an artist. And, and I hope Richard will speak to that uh, when, when his segment comes around. Well, he better, but I think he will. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so I think, and then, and then, you know, because the city was not expensive, clubs could operate and, you know, a club could, could again, feel like they could take chances on booking um, unknown bands. They didn't have to book you know, people who were household names, you know, people were going to come out and, and see what was going on. So I think they all fed into each other. And then as the 80s on, you know, I think certain pressures started to mount in terms of clubs being uh, viable because of city regulations and, you know, uh, rents increasing. And, you know, so things begin to close in, I think, uh, on, on the scene, making, making it a little more difficult to be as open and creative as it was in the early 80s. So it sounds like there was kind of a revolution going on in the early 80s as far as music and how it was being created and where it was being played and how it impacted the vibe of the city. It's something that maybe New York had never seen before. Well, I think there is a tradition in the 70s, you know, for, I, I think, for instance, of places like the kitchen and white columns, you know, which were alternative art spaces. And, you know, I, you know, it was those places that gave, you know, some music a chance. And, and so there is a, there is a continuum from the 70s and the openness, I suppose, of the 70s. But, um, but yeah, I, I feel like things really coalesced in the 80s and, um, you know, by then people kind of knew what they wanted to accomplish with their, with their art and, um, and we really saw it happening. And we also saw it, we also saw some of these bands begin to transcend just, you know, the local scene and become um, national, international acts, you know, record, get, you know, put albums out there on labels and and get to tour and, you know, really push beyond New York City at a certain point. Mm. As curator, Sean, what are some of the things that you want visitors to be really impacted by about in the in the exhibition about the period, the scene and the music? Um, for me, it's really important that people walk away with um hopefully a, a wider horizon uh, or a wider base of knowledge of what was, what kinds of music were happening in the city. I mean, people are gonna come in and they're gonna know certain bands just because they have become so popular today. And that's great. And I think we can give them some more information about those groups like Madonna or the Talking Heads, um, you know, or maybe, you know, some of the those bands like that. but. I really want people to see how adventurous and how um, expansive the sounds of the city really were at this time. And, and to walk away and say, you know, I don't really like that band, but I really love this band and I'm going to go listen. To, I'm going to go see what else they put out there. And, and hopefully, you know, that will lead them down a rabbit hole to several other bands. And, and uh, you know, for me, it's all about, uh, expanding horizons and musical exploration. And it's easy to do it. You don't have to make your way down to Tower Records on 4th Street to, uh, to buy uh, records. You can sit there with the, with the click of a mouse. We're almost out of time, but I want to ask you one more question. Um, how much time do you think someone should plan on spending at the exhibition to get the full impact of the show? Well, I think it all depends on how how far down the rabbit hole they really want to go because, you know, there's really amazing footage, but to see that footage, you have to be willing to spend time. Um, you know, if you want a, you know, a, a cursory look at the, the, you know, the photographs and the ephemera and, you know, just to get a sense of that um, still material, you know, you could probably get a, get a good impression in a half an hour, 45, 40 minutes. 
if you want to watch footage, you could spend a couple hours in there because there are three large screens and, and those, uh, the material on those loop about every half hour. And there's a video lounge, which has footage of about another half hour's worth of footage. Do you serve drinks there or not? (laughs) (laughs) We should actually. (laughs) Um, But, uh, but you know, it, 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 I would say if you find, you know, that you're engaged with it and you don't have the time, it might be worth a second look even Mm. because I, I really do feel like you could potentially spend hours in there if you had the time. Even better idea, you can go down the rabbit hole once and then come back for further rabbit hole immersions. Uh, <laughs> Sean, thank you so much for kicking off this special show on, on music in New York in the 1980s. My first guest has been on this special episode has been Sean Corcoran. Sean is the curator of prints and photographs at the Museum of the City of New York, and he is curating the exhibition... New York, New Music, 1980 to 1986. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to speak to one of those band members who started a band and played in the city as well as across the Hudson. Uh, We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy and Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. We're back, and you're back to Rediscovering New York in our special episode. This is episode 118. Can you believe I've been doing this more than 100 episodes? And our special program about new music in New York in the 1980s. Well, it's not new now, but it, boy, it wasn't new then. Um, support for the program comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. You can like the show on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles on all three are Jeff Goodman NYC. 
If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second special guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, it's time for our second guest on this special show, Richard Barone. Richard is from the Bongos. Uh, He's an acclaimed recording artist, performer, producer, and author. Since pioneering the indie rock scene in Hoboken, New Jersey, and New York as frontman for the Bongos, and then helping to launch the chamber pop movement with his solo debut, Cool Blue Halo, Richard has produced countless studio recordings and worked with artists in every musical genre. His list of collaborators includes Tony Visconti, the Beach Beach Boys Al Jardine, Sean Lennon, Dion, Donovan, Moby, the late Lou Reed, and folk legend Pete Seeger. He has written a memoir, Frontman, Surviving the Rockstar Myth. It was published by Hal Leonard Books. His latest album, Sorrows and Promises, is a celebration of the early 1960s music scene in Greenwich Village, where Barone now lives. He's affiliated with the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at NYU and the New School of Jazz and Contemporary Music. He also serves on the board of governors of the Recording Academy. They produce the Grammys, by the way. And he's also on the board of advisors of Anthology Film Archives here in the East Village in New York City, one of my favorite independent movie houses. Richard Barone, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. So great to have you. Thank you so much. And, you know, before we get started, I wanted to say how much I enjoyed Sean's uh, portion of the show and how much I love his uh, uh, curation of this of this exhibition now. I had been aware of his earlier work, the Kubrick material, and also his graffiti and activist New York exhibitions were real favorites of mine. So I'm thrilled to be part of the new New, new York New Music one that's up now. Well, now that we're on the exhibition, I'm going to jump ahead a little um, and note to our listeners that you're on the honorary committee for the exhibition, New York New Music, 1980-1986 yeah. at the museum. Uh, what was it like and why did you want to be involved in helping to, to put together the exhibition? Well, it's a big part of my life, for one thing. And it's all, it was also, I'm working on a book now, which is Greenwich Village in the 1960s. It's the music scene of that era. And I see a lot of parallels. So it's really on my mind about how you were speaking about this a few minutes ago, about um, it was just the first time in New York that this time, type of music scene. You actually used the word revolution, which is part of the title of my book, Music and Revolution. And in the, in the 1960s, there was a, um, a sort of a parallel in a different musical form, but a parallel music scene um, in New York that where it became the focus, and I think it happened again in the 80s, where New York became the focus for the music industry, where the new acts were really coming from. And not only were they coming from, but other other scenes, like you mentioned Athens, not Seattle was not happening at at all yet. So Seattle was not in the picture until the early 90s or the, the end of the very late 80s, after the period that this show covers. Uh, but the Athens, Georgia scene was, was a parallel scene. And they would come here, the B-52s would come play at CBGB's and the, on the small clubs here. That's how they really established themselves with the, was by coming to New York. This was the center. Starting from the, CB, the late 70s, the second half of the 70s with CBGB and those venues, there, there was a scene that was started pre-80s. That's what drew me here from Tampa, Florida, where I grew up. Uh, so by the time 1980 hit, which is when the Bongos formed, then there was a full-fledged new music scene that was revitalized that had sort of started and got a good start in the 70s, but then kicked through commercially, let's say, in 1980, when record label scouts were in all the venues signing acts, uh, people like Seymour Stein at Sire Records and label, uh, new labels that popped up, like there was a Z Records and they were distributed by majors. Uh, then something new was happening. Then it was really on fire. Everybody played here. Uh, the scenes merged. You know, a lot of the scenes merged. People came to New York. There was a Southern music scene happening in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, for instance. There was a group called the DBs. Um, they, they all moved here. Suddenly people came here. This became the new center. It, was, it drew people. When did you move to New York, Richard? And what is it about the city that had you say, this is where I got to come? Well, there was a few, there was actually a person who said you've got to come, and that was Tiny Tim, the seventies, the sixties uh, artist who I met when he was no longer famous, but on tour in Florida, 
and I, I was 16 years old and recording with him. I produced an album for him then. And he was telling me, Mr. Barone, of course, I was six, just turned 16, but I was Mr. Barone. Mr. Barone, you must live in Greenwich Village. That's when I first sort of know, yeah, kind of knowing that he uh, that he might have a good idea there, uh, describing the scene that he had known in the 60s. That's what that's my mm -hmm. connection to the 60s scene, too. I was a little young to I was just, I wasn't didn't make it here at that time. I was too young, but I did appreciate it through Tiny Tim and learned about it. Um, so I was drawn here. I just knew that this was the, uh, this is where the music was. I was also in high school working in a record store and buying the or, uh, first Talking Heads record. And, I mean, I was uh, aware that something was happening here, especially with the first Ramones album in the 70s. So I knew something was bound to happen. And I knew that's where I needed to be musically because it wasn't Florida. So it, I knew it had to be New York. By the way, we did have an episode on punk and we had two of the original members of Blondie. And one of the uh, guests on my show was John Holmstrom, who designed the first album co album covers for the Ramones. Yeah. Um, aside from Tiny Tim Richard, who were some of your other musical influences? People who impacted well, yeah, I couldn't say, I can't say, you know, I have to say that I can't say Tiny Tim's really an influence mm -hmm. because he's so uniquely himself. Yes, he was. But, but yeah. He was an inspiration. Uh, but my influences were the well. To be honest, uh, you know, going back the furthest, I loved the, always growing up the Beatles and Donovan, artist uh, Donovan, who I still work with. Uh, I liked pop music, so you know, a lot of the bands that that came out of the era that we're talking about, the '80s, were had grown up on pop, pure pop music too. What was happening when you talked about what was the fusion? You mentioned the word fusion earlier, and I like, I do like that word. I think it's appropriate. You know, what was what was fun and interesting was mixing our our childhood pop music that we loved with the new sort of industrial ideals of industrial sound and 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 avant garde elements. That was what the bongos really were about. We were mixing like, say, early Beatles melodies with industrial and avant garde sounds that were inspired by John Zorn or or DNA or these new bands that were coming up in New York that we we adored. Because almost all the bands that I knew of and that associated with, we were also fans of each other's bands. So we would go see everybody play. I loved the Bush Tatras. We became good friends. But really, first, we went to go see them because we loved them. And same with Arda Lindsay and DNA. And there were other groups of that type uh, in the no wave scene, the contortions, the early contortions, especially with Pat Place on guitar. Um, those were inspirations to us. And our challenge was how do we make that? part of our music without, I mean, without imitate, we never wanted to imitate anyone. And for instance, I can, only speaking for myself for the bongos, I don't think we ever did imitate anyone. We still had pop sensibility, but we would let that fusion, an infusion of sounds that we loved come into our sound. Mm. So there would suddenly be an explosion of atonal, you know, there'd be a solo that was just absolutely atonal coming in the middle of one of our songs, you know? We're going to take a break yeah. in a minute, but first I want to ask you, when did the bongos form, Richard, and how did you all meet? 1980, the Village Voice. We met through, uh, there was a person who actually then later started a band called The Individuals, Glenn Morrow, who started a label called Barn on Records, and he had an ad looking for a guitar player. The other members of his group that he was putting together were the other bongos, and we ended up forming our own group, and Glenn ended up forming his own group. Mm. Who came up with the name of the bongos? The drummer, of course. We had <laughs> actually gone to see the B-52s. And, um, you know, one of the wonderful members of that group was Cindy Wilson, is Cindy Wilson. And she was sitting on the floor during the show playing bongos. And so on the way home, we all drove, we drove together in our car. We were living in Hoboken at the time. And on the way home, the drummer said, how about if we call the band the bongos? And it just was so funny and silly. And. But it stuck. It worked. Yeah, it was, it was really fun for us. And people liked it. And it just stuck. Yeah. When did you all start playing in clubs? Was it like in 1980? 1980. Yeah, uh -huh. we, were, we were immediately playing in clubs. You know, we started our club in Hoboken. We helped them start it at Maxwell's because that was a restaurant where the, our drummer was the cook. By the way, my spouse, my husband saw you in the bongos at Maxwell's. 40 well, that, years was ago. Our, that was our home base. We lived like just about two doors down. And that was where we used to rehearse in the back room. And mm -hmm. then we... Uh, you know, met, taught, we ended up, you know, inviting people to the back room to do shows. We did play in the front room once as a group called A. That was the original form that we had with our with our friend Glenn Morrow, the one who started the label and the and the individuals. So we played in the front room, but 
the back room was where we rehearsed. That's the spot, the venue, musical part of the venue was the back room, but that was really just the storage room before at first. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our fascinating conversation with Richard Barone. Richard's an artist and a musician and the front man of the bongos. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Rediscovering New York and our special episode about new music in New York in the 1980s. My second guest is acclaimed recording artist, performer, producer, author, and frontman for the bongos, Richard Barone. Richard, did you, I want to ask you, did you get a feeling when you started the bongos and started playing in clubs that you were part of something that was big, like a new movement in music beyond just making your music? Of course. Of course, and it's because there was a synergy between not just the, the musicians, but the venues and the city itself. So the venue, the uh, venues that we first started playing in, Maxwell's was our, our home. But, when, you know, we, we immediately and simultaneously started playing in the New York dance clubs. Uh, hurrah, especially uh, at first, and then all of the Peppermint Lounge. We had, we had a very busy schedule. And, also uh, the Ritz? The Ritz, of course, but that's later. That's not one of the original clubs. Mud Club was early. A Mud Club um, uh, danceteria came up. Uh, Ritz was a bit later. Ritz was a larger space. That was Webster, you know, Webster Hall. Webster Hall now, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, I remember it at the Ritz. Uh, as the that, Ritz. That, developed a bit, that mid eighties that developed more. At the beginning, it was the smaller venues, it, and not necessarily smaller. Hurrah! I'm not even sure of the capacity, but uh, these were also video dance clubs. So when you mention in this in this uh, exhibition at the Museum of the City of New York, when you talk about the importance of the video, why there are these big screens? Well, the venues were very video centric. Like there was, and we would speak to the video um, D- VJs or the video, the people controlling the videos in these venues about what videos we would like to be shown when, on the nights that we played, for instance. It was a curated evening that with the DJ and the VJ and then the music that we were playing. You know, that was like, these were something that we would work with the venue on. And there were screens everywhere. Um, And our videos were widely played. That's how we were able to tour the country and do 300 shows a year in the United States. Uh, Because uh, through Rock America, one of the distributors of videos, pre-MTV, and they're one of the, the, um, uh, the, uh, Ed Steinberg at Rock America uh, provided a lot of the videos that are shown in this exhibition. Uh, Because of of that organization, we were able to be in, clubs of that type all over the country where they existed. It wasn't every city that had a video 
rock dance club, but the ones that did had our videos and we were able to perform there. And there was enough to have a circuit. So that's how we got around the country. And um, the, so what I, my point is that the, the uh, venues were, was very, a very collaborative experience to work with the venues, you know, with video and having our videos shown there before we would do uh, an appearance, the videos were being blasted in those venues. And the, the idea of the dance club did inform our music because we knew that it was going to be in a dance club. So that informed how our, especially with the bongos, not every band did that. I know the B-52s of course did that. And the Bush Tetras did. I, I think most of our friends were making records that sounded good on the dance floor. Hmm. That, that, shaped, that helped shape the, sort of the sound. It also differentiated our generation from the scene in the 60s, which was a, a real sit down and listen to the artist music. Uh, in the 80s, the music was the get up and dance music, even when it was avant-garde. Hmm. Like you mentioned Joseph Arthur. No, you mentioned uh, Arthur Russell. Um, and you, you, you know, a lot of the music, as industrial as it might have been, was also uh, uh, playable on the dance floor. That that was a signature of that of that era, I think. Well, speaking of a signature of that era and a music and videos, uh, what was it like when the Bongos were nominated for the first MTV Music Video Awards? That must have been a real beyond a thrill. I mean, well, it was, it was fun. You know, we had come from an independent background. We were signed first to a British label called Fetish Records. And then we got signed in America to uh, RCA Records. And that opened up a whole new world for us too, because then we had, you know, the sort of the corporate support of RCA Records and we were able to make larger scale videos too, including Numbers with Wings. That was a, that became an MTV favorite on the first year of MTV's um, broadcasting. So we were nominated for Best Direction in that year. And it was a thrill to sit with, you know, everyone in, in the front row. We were just kids, you know, and uh, and it, it was nice to see. Uh, I remember Madonna did her, uh, that was when she did um, Like a Virgin performance, which is shown at the museum. And I was telling someone when I was uh, at, on fr at Friday's opening of the exhibition, um, I happened to be there and she's on the stage rolling around now. To the audience, all you could see was a bundle of white fabric because she's in a wedding gown. You really couldn't see what she was doing. She was playing strictly to the cameras. And it's an iconic performance of, of uh, Like a Virgin. Uh, and it's great. But to the live audience, it was a whole different experience because we were, all of us were thinking in terms of, especially her, thinking in terms of video and what's going to read on the camera. You know what I mean? So we, we, we carefully made our videos. Our first ones were directed by Ed Steinberg. And we worked, uh, one of the, our, our videos in the show at the museum is uh, The Bull Rushes. That was directed by uh, one of our dear friends, Phil Marino, who was our still photographer. And that was done on eight millimeter film, very raw. That became a look too, when people started like finding vintage material that would look cool on video, you know? So that was, a. Uh, that was, I'm, I'm glad that Sean chose that to be in the show, but we also made slick, big, big scale videos with RCA. You know, it was, it was, it was a thrill to, to be able to have that kind of a budget to do that. Did getting nominated for the first MTV Awards, did that recognition influence the kind of music that the band created after that? Maybe, but not really consciously, I would say, except that we knew we were part of a community. We, want, we, wanted, to know, we wanted to know our place in it. And we wanted to, um, to be like, I hate to say this, but to be useful within this community. Like, what do we bring? What is it that the bongos can do? What, what kind of music can we share that's different than anybody else? So in a way, yes, but not really directly to imitate, but to find our spot. Anytime we were able to be sort of nominated or be part of a community like that, that were, you know, other musicians, we would want to find what we could do that was different. We have a couple of minutes left, Richard. I know uh -huh. that you planned a tour for 2020, which got canceled due to the pandemic. Yeah. Are you coming to come back? And where And where can people, well, the Bongos, where you can know, people we, hear we, you? We go through many years where we don't play together because we all do so many different things. And I do love to do my own solo music. And I love writing books. I'm work, Like I said, I'm writing a new one now, Music and Revolution. But uh, we, we will be doing some shows this fall. Uh, a lot of the shows, because of COVID, we did have a tour. And a lot of them can't be rescheduled because they were festivals. 
but wow. we will be doing shows and we plan to do more. The band that we all love each other. We're very close friends and brothers. And uh, whenever we get a chance to tour or perform together, we jump at it because it's, it's fun for us. You know, we just, we played in Atlanta last year in Asbury park right before the pandemic. So we got a few shows in, I had my mother in the front row. She was still rocking out with us. Yeah. Do you have dates for shows in New York yet? Not yet. Not yet. We'd like to, you know, and we're hoping, yeah, we're hoping to, to be able to do some things in New York city. Uh, but we don't have any, anything on the books yet. It's just been so nebulous with scheduling. One other question I have to ask you, um, are the band members uh, the same as they were in the eighties? Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. The that's, cool. that's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, we added, we started out as a trio and then we added James Mastro at, uh, when we signed with RCA. So around 83, we added uh, James and then it became a quartet. Mm. But th- since then, we've been exactly the same. Yeah. Well, Richard, like so many interviews on the show, the time goes really fast and I wish we had a lot more time. But I want to thank you so much for being on the show, the special show about, about new music in New York in the 1980s. Um, everyone, our second guest on this special show has been Richard Barone, frontman for the Bongos. Richard is not only a recording artist, but also a producer and author. And what's the name of the latest book that you have coming out, Richard? It's called Music and Revolution, Greenwich Village in the 1960s. That should and be out in 2022. I'm right in the middle of it now. Excellent. Well, I look forward to reading it. Um, well, everyone, if you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Thomas Yaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And when I'm not on the air talking to great people about great things in New York, I help people sell, buy, lease, and rent real estate. My team and I really provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with those real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer this evening is the great Emily Schulman. Our special consultant for the series is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. at www.talkradio.nyc, now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Hey, everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy and Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. 
Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 